Amen. Good to be back with you guys. Sorry I didn't see much of you in 2018. It was a busy year. Um, just wanted to thank you guys for your, your physical, your spiritual, your financial support of the well. Um, our two churches are a beacon of light to this community that says we're together for the gospel and we're about the kingdom. And then we're sending a big message and I just want to thank you for that because it's, it's just huge. Uh, I, I don't know of another church planter that has a church in a 15-mile radius of his church that supports them the way you guys do us, and it's just awesome. So I just want to thank you for that. Uh, like I said, 2018 was a rough year for the McGann family. Uh, we suffered uh, quite a bit of loss, and uh, as I was telling some folks before service, despite me... 2018 was the best year of the well ever. Uh, so as, as distracted as I was by the, the pain and suffering that was going on in my own personal family, uh, God's family was growing despite anything that I have to do. So if that wasn't a bigger message from God that He's doing this and I'm just along for the ride, um, uh, it was loud and clear. So thank you, Jesus. If you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Um, I'm going to sway from my normal style of sort of expositional. We're, we're in the middle of a series right now at the well that I've really been wanting to preach for a long time. I'm, I'm an exegetical, expositional, start in a book and preach your way through it kind of guy. But I've been, I've been wanting to preach sort of a topical series for, for a long time, ever since we planted the church. Um, and what we're calling the series Religious Recall. And the, the mindset behind it is there's a lot of sort of Christianese statements out there that we use sometimes that really don't line up with Scripture and sometimes aren't really helpful when we use them. And so we've been taking a look at some of those. Some of those statements are things like everything happens for a reason or uh, God won't put on more than you can bear and all of those things. So we've been taking a biblical look at those statements and then... Uh, either giving validity to the statement or picking it apart, kind of recalling it. Kind of like when you have to take your car to the shop and they're like, that part's not working right. We're going to replace it with a new one. Um, that's sort of what we've been doing with these statements. And so we have about eight or nine of these statements. And one of those statements I'm going to share with you today. It's probably one of the most popular things we hear all the time. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. So we're going we're gonna to look at that statement today. We're going to take a look at God wants me to be happy. We're going to start in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 31 through 39. Um, so if you look with me in Romans chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 31, through 30, 31 and 32 right now. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Question mark. So that's sort of Paul asking this question. He, he, he's making a statement and he's asking a question sort of uh, uh, in the same breath. He's saying, since God paid the ultimate and infinite price of his son for you, for me, won't he then surely carry through with every provision that we need? And that's a very logical question. The answer is obviously yes. 
But if we look and we continue on in, in Romans 8, and we look down at verse 35 through 39, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, which is an Old Testament reference to Old Testament Scripture, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, comma, he says. In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers or height or depth, anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. So we've got persecution here. We've got murder of Christians. And Paul's saying, no, in these things, we are conquerors. What does he mean by that? Well, we have to then contextualize the, the, the Scripture and we have to say, what was a conqueror? When Paul is saying to the Roman church, you're a conqueror. What is a conqueror? We don't use that word in our common language today. We don't run around talking about being conquerors. Especially in the world that we find ourselves in today, where, uh, especially for the United States, our military fights battles and gives land back. So a conqueror for this day, when this letter was written to the Roman church, a conqueror was someone who took a land, conquered it, inhabited it, and then took the people in that land and made them servants. That's, that's what a conqueror was for Paul. So when Paul is saying, we are that, that's, that's interesting that he would then say, man, here we are Christians, but we're more than conquerors. What I, what I think he means here is he's saying your enemy, for a conqueror in that context, in that day, and a conqueror laid their enemies at their feet and they served the conqueror. And so he's saying all of these things that we have, distress, and, and now we can, we can contextualize it to our present day. We can say anxiety and depression and, and all of these things that attack us, that, that we are affected by. He's saying you're more than conquerors in them. As a matter of fact, we're no longer going to allow anxiety and depression and fear and angst and all of these things to, serve, to, to control us. We conquered them in Christ. They've been conquered through the blood. They've been conquered by Jesus. And so now anxiety and depression serve you. They serve for the better good. Yes, anxiety and depression are still there. They're, they're consequences of the fall. These things are here. The sin and the darkness in the world, it's here because it's a consequence of the fall. That's why back when we, when we talked about God won't put more on you than you can handle, the first thing we said was, God's not the one always putting everything on you. Some of the things that we deal with in our life are a result of the fall. They're not what God would want. They're just consequences of the ultimate sin. And so be sure that we don't necessarily view that in that way. Because what Paul is saying is, you're a conqueror. Jesus defeated this, and this now serves us. My persecution, your famine, your nakedness, your loss, your pain. It goes back to, again, the whole concept of these are consequences of sin, but we're no longer a slave to sin. Sin is now our slave. Sin now is something that we have conquered. And he's saying, do not let these things control you. 
but master them. Be over them. Rule over them. And God works them all together, right? We, we, we love that statement. God works all things together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose, right? In this same passage of Scripture. But these things are caused because of sin. And so we conquer them through the blood of Christ. So, what does this have to do with happiness? It's circumstances that we have to deal with. What does this have to do? Well, Jesus was a man, the Scripture says, that was acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrow, it says, right? He, he certainly dealt with that. We, 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 we talked about um, uh, when, when Lazarus uh, died and Jesus wept with his sisters. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why was he crying? Because death had to come at all. Because there's a consequence to sin. And sin, when it is finished, is what? Death. He was heartbroken. Yeah, he knew that he was going to raise him from the dead. And yeah, he knew that. But he was heartbroken that death had to come at all. So Paul is saying, hey, Jesus was a man of sorrows, but yet he was always rejoicing. Paul even was uh, uh, described as, as someone who was sorrowful and rejoicing. Think about Paul for a minute. Here's a guy, the, the man writing this letter, who's been beaten to death, left for dead many times, kicked out of everywhere that he goes. He went from uh, you know, uh, a high-esteemed, pharisaical person uh, to what someone wouldn't scrape off the bottom of their shoe. He was despised and rejected by the people that he grew up with. Beaten his, his back. Uh, he, he says, in, in, uh, talks about the, the five times the, the 39 lashes. His back must have looked like a washboard. This is a guy that probably couldn't even do what most of you are doing right now. He probably couldn't lean his back against anything. Imagine how miserable you'd be if you couldn't even go sit somewhere and, and rest your back. This is a man who was certainly acquainted with grief, and yet his statement was, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. He's talking about a lasting joy. So when people kind of say the statement, God wants me to be happy, the, the definition of happiness there is what we really want to take a look at today. What is the happiness that God wants us to have? Because I'll come straight out and say, absolutely, God wants us to be happy. I'll give up the, I'll, 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 I'll give a spoiler. I'm not going to wait to the end and say, does God really want us to be happy? And then spring it on you. Yes, God wants us to be happy. But God wants us to not be happy in things of the earth. Now, let's, let's talk about that. So, if... God wants me to be happy means God wants me to be pleasured, then I would completely and totally disagree with that. If God wants me to have everything that makes me happy, then I would completely and totally disagree with that. And I can scripturally support that because the scripture says sin has what for a season? Pleasure. Sin has pleasure for a season. There is a sense of pleasure. And everyone in here can, can, can attest to that. There are things that bring us happiness or pleasure that are not of God. There are things that bring us pleasure. So, 
earmuffs on the little guys. If, 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 if the statement is saying God wants me to be happy and pornography brings me happiness, God doesn't want you to be happy. If, if the statement is God wants me to be happy and in your text, in your context, that means God wants me to be happy. He wants me to be rested. He wants me to, 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 to take care of myself but you neglect your children and lay around and never spend any time with them for the purpose of rest because you need to be happy, then God doesn't want you to be happy. God wants you to be a father. God wants you to be a mother. God wants you to be a parent. So we have to eliminate the idea of pleasure with happiness because happiness does not always bring you pleasure. I mean, pleasure doesn't always bring you happiness. It brings you temporary what the world describes as happiness. So, because we make the statement, God wants me to be happy, it's very broad-ranged. It's very open. And people will often use it as a testimony to get away with sinning or doing something that is counter to what God's plan has for them. So we'll say, well, God wants me to be happy, doesn't He? So we'll... we'll justify some things in our lives under this guise that God wants me to be happy. Well, that's because our definition of happy is distorted. Uh, John Piper tells a story. He told a story. I was at a conference a couple years ago that he was at, and he told this story. He was remembering back years ago in Bethel College, and they had these two um, professors that would pass each other in the hallway. And the one would walk by every morning and say, Love Jesus. And the other professor would walk by and say, Obey Jesus. And they had this sort of, every morning, this interaction. And it led to this whole conversation of, and we've heard this statement, which is sort of an underlying statement of God wants me to be happy. It leads us naturally to the next statement, which is God wants us to be obedient over happiness. It's a dangerous statement to make as well. And, and, We'll look at that again. So, I want to be careful because if God desires our obedience more than our happiness, then take it back to the same scenario I just gave you. If God wants you to be more obedient than He wants you to be happy, then when God commands us to rest, but yet your rest is causing you to sin against your family, isn't that, isn't that juxtaposed against each other? So we have to be careful when we say God wants us to be obedient more than he wants us to be happy. What we're saying is they're, they're two separate boats. We're, we're viewing them as two separate crafts. What we really need to do is put obedience and happiness in the same boat and realize that they're just different oars. You ever been in a flat bottom boat with two oars and you just keep rowing to the right? What do you do? You spin around in circles. And if you just row the one on the left, you spin around in circles. So we have to be careful not to view these as separate boats, but the same boat, just different oars. And obedience and happiness work together. Obedience and joy and lasting joy work together. So what if God means your desires are your happiness? He doesn't. Because it says don't follow your heart because your heart is desperately what? Wicked. Your heart's desperately wicked. Boy, this is so hard to grasp. Dan, please, you've just shotgun blasted a whole bunch of stuff. Can you bring it all together? Yeah, I can. Look at John chapter 17, verses 13 through 19. John 
chapter 17, verses 13 through 19. The danger, and why you're turning there, the danger in only obeying and talking only obey, 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 is we, we can actually create sort of a biblically false picture of the gospel. And it, we, we, can, we can quickly row ourselves into a circle of legalism and, and um, compliant cult-like behavior. But if we only do the row the oar of happiness, we simply can become a people that just get circle encirculated with self-pleasuring so there has to be an even keel of these two so look at john chapter 17 verses 13 through 19 but now i'm coming to you and these things i speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves i have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as i am not of the world i do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they, that they also may be sanctified in truth. What do you mean by all that? So look, he says, I speak to you and great joy fills you. And then in the very next sentence, he says, I speak to you and great hatred comes against you. So if this is the selling point, you don't see this written on many of the banners in front of churches. If you become a Christian, the world will hate you. That's basically the big picture, right? Oh, if you want to follow Jesus, hatred will come against you. It's not a great selling point. We don't see that in a lot of the seminary classes that, that, that teach about the, 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 the benefits of Christianity. Happiness is superficial and it's based on circumstance. Worldly happiness is circumstantial and it's based on superficial things. It's based on circumstance. Joy is deep and it's based fully and totally in Christ because he is the only hope. He's the only hope. There are fleeting hopes. There are possible hopes. There are maybe hopes, but Jesus is the only hope. In, in studying for this, I could not find in Scripture a word for superficial happiness. I couldn't find a word for superficial happiness you look at the greek you look at the hebrew you can look at all of that there's not really a word for everything is 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 tied up in in one sense of the word when it comes to happiness the word there they all flow together they, they all flow into this one thing gladness rejoicing excitement joy even some of the words have a root of what they depth. I couldn't find this superficial, fleeting happiness. I couldn't find it. They're, they're used interchangeably, but the root of the word is all about Christ. It's all about the Lord. It's all about this beyond the surface. So the main reason I don't like the sentence, one, God wants me to be happy, 
because it's dangerous. Because everyone's definition of happiness is different. And if I broad range, big paint strip, sweep that across the board and I just say, God wants you to be happy. I'm really giving people a ticket to sin. So we have to be careful with the sentence. The main reason I don't like the idea that God desires obedience rather than happiness is God obeys us to be joyful. It is an, it, I mean, God commands us to be joyful. It's an obedience to be joyful in the Lord. He commands it of us. And so if, he, if, he, if His command is to be happy and we're not happy, then we're disobedient. So how does He desire our obedience over our happiness? Right? It's so crazy that we would try to reduce Scripture down into one little sentence that says God wants me to be happy. It's a category that can cause a lot of confusion. Because I'm going to throw a bunch of Scripture at you. You're not going to turn to them fast. I'll give anybody a copy of my notes that want them. I'm going to throw tons of Scripture at you really quick. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37. The Bible says, be glad in the Lord, Psalm 32. The Bible says, rejoice in the Lord, Philippians 3. Rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians. The Bible says, do your acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Romans, serve the Lord with gladness. So it can be really misleading at best to say that God desires your obedience more than your happiness because obedience to these commands is eternal happiness. So many Christians struggle to cope with the hand that they've been dealt. Uh, No family has probably felt that more. Um, Well, I want to say more, but my family has certainly felt that this year. Uh, 2018, or last year, 2018 was a rough year for my family. It was a really, really tough year. My father passed away in April, and it took him seven days to pass away, and I stood around his bed. As a matter of fact, the, the song, uh, Great is Thy Faithfulness, was the last song that my five brothers and sisters would be stood around his bed holding hands. He was a believer, and, and so joyfully, I am so joyful that he was. Uh, We stood around his bed and we sang hymns. And the last hymn we sang my father before he went into glory was Great is Thy Faithfulness. So that that song always has a special spot for me. But we we struggle to deal with the hand we've been dealt. So in April, my father passes away. A man I revered and just, just thought the world of. He was a great example of what Jesus was. Even though it took me a lot longer to find Jesus under his care and direction and then in july a young man who basically grew up in my house he was in my house every weekend he was he did sound for the well on uh when we were first starting he'd carry everything in he'd set up everything and then we'd break it all back down and carry it back to the storage shed and the next sunday he'd be there doing it again for seven eight months straight he did that while we were set up and break down And in July, he took his own life. My little boy's best friend took his own life. So we we, we wonder, why? And my son had to say, doesn't God want us to be happy? Why did he do this? Well, one, that's a question that will always remain unanswered. But, as we struggle to deal with the hand we've been dealt, Christians 
all across the country, all across the world, particularly in America, wake up discontent with life, whether it's singleness, whether it's marriage, whether it's career or church or community or whatever. And what they think is if they change their circumstances, it'll change their happiness. So here's a few examples. I hate being single, so I'm just going to settle on somebody. I'm going to get married. First nice guy that treats me right, I'm tired of being single. Or the first great girl that comes along, I'm, gonna just, I'm, tired, I'm just going to settle. Or my spouse doesn't satisfy me, so I'm going to get a new one. My job isn't fulfilling enough, so I'm just going to go find a new one. My church isn't exciting enough, so I'm going to go find a new one. My life is miserable, so I'm going to end it. God doesn't make me happy, so I'm going to reject Him. These are the things, these are the thoughts, these are the processes. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote this in one of his commentaries. It is a common saying that there are many people who are neither well when they are full nor when they are fasting. There are some people who are of such irritable and unpleasant disposition that no matter what condition they are put in, they are obnoxiously miserable. There are some who have unpleasant hearts and they are unpleasant in every circumstance that they encounter. The human heart is impossible to satisfy. That's amazing because it's so accurate. Everybody in this room, myself included probably a dozen times, have tried to change their circumstances in order to orchestrate their own happiness. And Christ is, not, is saying to us, circumstance is superficial. Spurgeon pointed out, remember that a man's contentment is in his mind, not in the extent of his possessions. Alexander the Great conquered everything. And what was his cry when he conquered everything? There are no more worlds to conquer. He had everything. He had the world at his feet. And he was completely unsatisfied. Why? Because there's a better way. There is a path that leads to sweet contentment, to true, lasting joy, and what we would call biblical happiness. The Christian's discontentment, if you get nothing else from what I'm saying today, listen to this statement. A Christian's discontentment is directly linked to their view of God. The Christian's discontentment is directly linked to their view of God. Here's what happens. Discontentment. Satan loves to do this. He screams at you. You deserve better. So when you're at this job that isn't satisfying you, Satan says, you deserve better. And because it's being screamed at us, but then... What he whispers in our ear is, God, God's not giving you what you deserve. It's God's fault that you're not happy. It's God's fault. God is holding you back. You deserve better. God is not giving you what you deserve. There's some truth to that statement. There is some severe truth to that statement that's one of the tricks of satan is he loves to use half truths because god isn't giving you what you deserve he sent jesus 
to die on a cross and to take your place and to give you His righteousness. You're not getting what you deserve. Thank God we're not getting what we deserve. And so when Satan sneaks in and he screams, you deserve better, and he whispers, God's not giving you what you deserve. You can actually agree with him. And you can say, you're right. And because of Christ, you're going to get what you deserve. Satan is the master of mixing lies and truths. The lie leads you to believe that we're wiser than God. It pushes us into this humanistic mindset. With this in mind, on our worst day, he's worthy of thanksgiving and praise because he didn't give us what we deserve. I had an old, the very first pastor I ever had, when I, when I walked the aisle and, and professed Christ as my Savior, just about every Sunday I'd hear the old preacher, he would you know, be talking to other people. And probably 90% of the time, he'd often end the service with, well, if God never does another thing, he's done more than enough. And that statement has always stuck with me. If God never does another thing, He's already done more than enough. This is the view of God that helps to humble the heart, to create in us a mindset of humility, to be reminded constantly that anything above salvation is a bonus. So as we fight daily with discontentment, as we try to interpret everything that is coming our way, and we try and feed it in through our Christian funnel and filter, the Puritan that I quoted earlier, Jeremiah Burroughs, he goes on with his statement. It's kind of a heartbreaking statement just to leave it the way I did. So I have to finish the quote. Have good thoughts of God. Make good interpretations of His dealings towards you. It is very hard to live comfortably and cheerfully among friends when one make harsh interpretations of the words and actions of another. The only way to keep sweet contentment and comfort in our Christian lives is to make the best interpretations of things that we can. Likewise, a primary way to help keep comfort and contentment in our hearts is to make good interpretations of God's dealings with us. Imagine if we truly believe that. Imagine if, imagine if, and at some point I wish I could convey it to everyone who's ever lost a loved one. I remember sitting in a church, Epsom Bible Church in New Hampshire, a couple, the day, the day after my father passed. And I was mad. I will self-righteously tell you I was mad at God when my dad died. I was mad because of the way my father died, and I thought God owed him something. I thought, you, I thought God owed my dad a better death than what he had. Gasping for air for seven days just, just, just was not, to me, the way that you end one of your servants' lives. And I was mad at him, and I was wrong to be mad at him. But I was mad at him nonetheless. And I remember going to that church and my sister said, can I go with you? I said, no, I've got to do this alone. I'll go to another church. <laughs> this one's mine. I'm going there. And in, in the back of my mind, here I am, a pastor of a church, someone who has confessed the Lord for 20 years, and in the back of my mind, I wanted everybody in that church to treat me like dirt so I could prove that God was just bad. I'm just being honest with you. 
And of course, God's people showered me with love and affection. So I just wrote that off to, they just want to add new people to their church, so they're not really genuinely nice to me. They're just being nice because I'm the new guy. And as I sat and I listened to the worship and I tried to worship, and my, Paul, when Paul describes in Galatians the battle between the flesh and the spirit, I experienced it that Sunday. And I said, God, I'm so mad at you right now. How could you let my dad die like this? He served you endlessly. He was one of the best representations I've ever seen of you. How in the world would you let this happen? And as if audibly I could hear the Lord, but he just impressed on me, I am broken for Bill too. You know, sometimes we think that God's just sitting up there and he's just ambivalent to all of that. But just like when Jesus wept because Lazarus died, even though he knew he was going to raise him back from the dead, he wept. Because death still had to come. And God knew that he was in his presence. and He was still broken over the fact that sin has caused such a problem in the world. That our bodies have to fall apart and decay and we have to die. But thanks be to God that he made a way. Thanks be to God that Satan's whisper in our ear is actually true. He didn't give us what we deserve. Imagine if we truly believed that about God. James 1, verses 2-4 through four says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let the things of the world be at our feet and be conquered through Christ. Let them not control us and rule us and cause us to want to change our circumstances all the time and constantly be changing partners and places and jobs. And we've, in, we've antagonized this mindset in our culture because now we no longer fix things. Where's the closest bicycle junkyard? Anybody know? There was one on every corner when I was a kid. Because when you broke your bike, you fixed it. Now you throw it out and you get a new one. Because it's cheaper to buy a new one than it is to work on the old one. We do it with our laptops, our phones, and it's carried right into our relationships. My boyfriend's broken, so I'm going to get rid of him. My husband's broken. I'm going to get rid of him. I'm going to get a new one. It's, it's less effort for me to get a new one than it is for me to work on the old one. We've carried it around. And so when somebody says, God wants me to be happy, doesn't God want me to be happy? The answer to that is yes, He does. He wants you to be happy in Him. He wants you to be happy in Him. Because the Things that we're chasing don't make us happy. So we just have to have the correct definition of what happiness is. If we interpret everything that happens, sickness, death, loss, anxiety, actions, all of those, if we interpret all of that the wrong way, if we don't see this as something God allows, He's taking what is a consequence of the fall, 
Understand that all sin is a consequence of the fall. All bad stuff is not, God's not throwing bad stuff down at us to make us stronger. He's having us deal with it in it. He's saying you're conquerors in it. He's not creating bad things to happen to strengthen you. He's strengthening you in the bad things that sin has created. And He's making you a conqueror. And so does God want you to be happy? Absolutely, He wants you to be happy. He wants you to have an unending joy. That circumstance can't change happiness. He wants you to be able to come out of a 2018 after burying your dad and a little boy that grew up in your house. He wants you to be able to walk through that and say, joy, unending joy. So does God want you to be happy? Absolutely. Just make sure that you don't submit that as God wants me to be pleasured. Because there's a big difference. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to to sort of take a a topical thing and, and just share you in it. Lord, maybe there's some people right now that are struggling with the hand that, they, that they've been dealt, so we say. Sin dealt that hand and you have made a way to be conquerors over it. Every bad thing can be traced back to the fall and God, you have given us a way not only to deal with those things in them, but you have given us a hope after them. And so Lord, help us to realize maybe there's somebody in here right now that thinks that they need to change their circumstance because it's going to bring them greater happiness. Maybe it's not their circumstance they need to change, but it's their status. Maybe they need to be a child of the King. Or maybe they need to be, maybe they already are and they just need to fall back in love with the Father. Maybe they need to listen to your voice and not the one that says they deserve something more. And Father, I want to thank you for not giving us what we deserve. I want to thank you for exposing Satan's lie when he screams out to us that we deserve better because we don't. That's a blatant lie. We don't deserve better. And thank you for the truth that he says when he whispers it and says, God's not giving you what you deserve. May we, may we turn that into an amazing truth that drives our joy, our happiness, our biblical happiness. And Lord, may we fight and contend for the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Our hymn of response is hymn number 437, Trust and Obey. Please stand and join as we sing.
to trust and obey. All right, announcements. Tomorrow at noon, Joyce's lunch. What else do we have? Nothing else? We have, oh, I'm sorry, Pam. If you're interested in serving with Vacation Bible School, see Pam after the service. And we need to announce we not have just one, but we have two Bible studies during the week. One for the ladies on Tuesday at 6.30 here. And then we have the other Bible studies at 7 o'clock. When the bronze are in town, it's over in the parsonage. When they're not in town, we have it here. Any other? It's everybody. Whoever wants to come. Yes. Fundraiser for Love Guatemala this afternoon. Anything else? Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you, thank you for sending your Son that lived the life we should have lived and died to death, or lived the life we should have lived and died the death that we deserved. Let us go into the week this week, pursuing happiness and the right kind of happiness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.